Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Paul Harkins, who is a lecturer in music at Edinburgh Napier University, about his new book, Digital Sampling, The Design and Use of Music Technologies. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks, Steve. Um, This is a really interesting book, um, both in terms of its subject matter, um, but also, I think, in the way that it, it asks us to sort of reframe um, our understanding of various bits of the history of music and, and how we think about the relationship between um, music and, and technology. And I guess the place to start is is where your interest in uh, not just kind of you know music and tech, but but the idea that there was another story to be told about music and technology came from. Yeah, I think I had to kind of reframe my own understanding of sampling as I was working on this project. Uh, I mean, as a a massive fan of music growing up, uh, I was a big fan of what you would probably call sample-based music uh, in the 80s and and 90s, a kind of fan of albums like Primal Scream, Screamadelica, Della Souls, Three Feet High and Rising. So a kind of big fan of of sampling uh, that would be using, uh, you know, excerpts from... Uh, from speeches on Screamadelica or Della Souls, uh, use of old soul, funk, uh, kind of weird uh, comic samples. So that that was kind of my uh, understanding of sampling uh, growing up. And then uh, I kind of worked in music publishing for uh, about kind of five years um, and was kind of seeing and dealing with sampling from very much from the point of view uh, of kind of its legal aspects and dealing with sample disputes and the problems that arose um, from sampling. So when I kind of came to start uh, work on this project, and it, you know, it was initially a PhD project, uh, I discovered that the, the literature on sampling was kind of very much still shaped um, by those legal issues, particularly the, the cases in, in the US uh, in the late 80s around Delaso and kind of what people describe as that golden age uh, of sampling. So for me, uh, kind of starting off, I was kind of really wanting to tell uh, a different story about sampling, kind of try and shift uh, the focus away from appropriation, you know, not completely because it's still vitally important um, in popular music. Um, but yeah, just try and widen um, the, the kind of focus um, and think about all the different types of, of sampling that have kind of been used since uh, since the 1980s. So, you know, I kind of, I've not lost so- sight of copyright uh, completely in those issues. They're still kind of terribly important to how uh, people make music and the conditions in which they make music. But I also wanted to kind of, um, or what I kind of ended up doing was kind of by looking historically at sampling was just kind of looking at the kind of multiplicity uh, of uses of sampling from the 1980s onwards and uh, kind of discovering myself about how uh, designers and of these instruments in the 80s were very much uh, trying to kind of design instruments that could uh, replicate the sounds of acoustic instruments. So uh, we'll probably go on to talk about the Fairlight and uh, EMU systems and companies like that. 
Um, but also the, very much uh, focused on the sounds of everyday life in the early 1980s. Um, so, yeah, I think I've kind of just tried to widen the definition of sampling. Um, obviously, there's a kind of long history of, of the digital and, um, you know, we could go back to the 1920s to think about the work that was going on in, in Bell Labs or think of uh, Max Matthews and the use of computer music in the 1950s and kind of the concept of sampling uh, as the, the conversion of kind of analog to a digital signal and uh, turning music into to ones and, and zeros. So my definition of sampling in the book is very much that it is about the recording, the storage and the reproduction of, of sound using digital technologies. Um, but at the same time in the book, um, I'm also aware of the, the kind of coexistence of the analog and the digital and how it's from analog synth that we get to digital synth and then digital sampling. Um, but I think what's happened uh, in kind of in the sort of the minds of, of, the, of the public, and uh, we kind of now think because sampling has become so associated with kind of hip hop and appropriation, um, we kind of now think of uh, you know the use of of any kind of pre-recorded sound as being a sample. So I, I talk in the book about how uh, the Beatles kind of tape experiments in the nineteen sixties are now now being described as kind of samples, or we kind of fast forward to nineteen seventy nine. And the Sugar Hill Gang's use of of good times being a sample, and I enjoy kind of talking to students about this, uh, and actually kind of realizing, well, in actual fact, there was no kind of samples used on on the making of, of that record uh, in 1979, because at that point, uh, the kind of the only samplers, even though they were not called samplers at that time, uh, you could only sample one second uh, of sound. So yeah, I think we're kind of now using kind of sampling as a concept in, in quite historical ways sometimes. So I was just kind of trying to write uh, about sampling in, in a kind of more precise way, while at the same time just trying to kind of open it up a little bit and look at all the diverse ways that kind of sampling has been used and is being used, and also just kind of extend uh, the genres uh in terms of kind of that 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 literature, because the focus has been on hip hop, and I'm a massive hip hop fan. You know, I kind of loved writing the chapter on hip hop in the book, but I also wanted to write about sampling and in folk music and in forms of electronic dance music, and I guess in in, in pop music as well. I mean, the, the other thing in terms of extending um, the breadth of genres in the book it is an extension that is is theoretical, and, and the book has a, a sort of an STS, a science and technology studies um, framework, which in, in some ways is quite natural um, and, and, you know, it seems quite a natural fit in terms of the types of machines, types of technologies, computer programs, um, and concerns with, I guess, what's afforded. You know, you mentioned um, technologies that only allowed a second or so of, uh, of a sample. Um, but also at the same time, it's, you know, uh, slightly different from a, a kind of a pure sort of musicological um, understanding of of the history of these genres. So it'd be interesting to know um, what that kind of STS inspired approach is to the book, and, and what um, I suppose extra or, or, or different um, that framework uh, brings to the story. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think for me, I, as I kind of mentioned, I, I was kind of trying to get away from the, the kind of fixation on on legal issues and, and trying to think more about musical practices. Um, so that you know, the focus of the book is kind of what were people uh, doing with technologies, um, and that's where kind of STS came in for me. Uh, 
as a kind of great way of providing me with a kind of framework because uh, what I've kind of tried to do uh, in the book, certainly the first half is kind of more focused on the instruments themselves, the technologies, um, but very much kind of focused on the designers of those technologies, what they were trying to achieve, uh, their goals, their objectives, uh, and often the, the kind of failures and, and the way in which they didn't manage to achieve uh, those objectives. And then how the users uh, became uh, important in terms of continuing uh, the story, in terms of developing those technologies in ways which were just completely uh, unintended. So for me, STS kind of provided me with that framework in terms of looking at uh, designers on the one hand uh, and then what users are actually doing in in practice and just trying to connect them up as well, kind of thinking about the kind of feedback loop uh, where kind of the the uses that the users are, are putting these technologies to end up kind of kind of redesigning the instrument in, in many ways. So it's trying to trying to understand that relationship and also kind of thinking about the mediators in between uh, the kind of fan clubs, uh, the distributors of these instruments as well. Uh, I mean, I think kind of one of the, the things I should mention about STS as well is just, uh, the, well, one of the inspirations, I guess, was probably the work of somebody like Trevor Pinch, who had written so well, uh, along with Frank Drocco, uh, about the Moog synthesizer. So that, that book, uh, Analog Days, was kind of, I guess a book that kind of really helped me uh, see how uh, STS was being applied to the study of uh, a musical instrument and thinking about that musical instrument as as a technology. I mean, I think w- why I enjoyed that book so much, I think, is it tells it's a very readable history of the Moog, uh, and it's not until the final chapter that Pinch and Trocco kind of smuggle in uh, some of the concepts from from STS in terms of kind of boundary objects. Uh, and liminality um, but I think yeah for me it was a kind of really good way of kind of telling the story of, of the Moog uh, and that kind of the period of, of kind of analog synthesizers uh, in the 1960s so for me I guess I was kind of in some ways trying to continue that story a little bit by uh, having to look at the, the design of digital synthesizers in the 1970s and then look at how that uh, ended up kind of creating uh, the roots of, of sampling instruments uh, in the 1980s. So, yeah, very much um, STS kind of helped with that designers-users type type framework. Um, but, I, I mean, I kind of started off very much kind of thinking about uh, sort of contemporary uses of, of technologies. And, and the second half of the book is, is about kind of different users in different places uh, and what they were doing. Uh, but again, some of the concepts from STS became... Uh, very helpful. Um, obviously, the idea of kind of scripts uh, in terms of a, a script being inscribed in an object, in terms of it being uh, expected to use, being used in a certain way. So, uh, if we go on to talk about something like the Fairlight computer musical instrument, you know, this, this is where the designers in Australia were very much uh, trying to uh, follow the the ways in which many uh, synth designers had been interested in imitating the sounds of acoustic instruments. Um, but of course, when users then start to get a hold of the instrument uh, and just discover that the, the sound quality isn't good enough, the fidelity isn't great, uh, and they end up using uh, the technology to record uh, everyday sounds. Um, so yeah, the idea of script was kind of useful for me. The concept of interpretive flexibility as well, which is kind of not a new concept in STS, but one that's still very relevant and useful for kind of telling stories about how technologies develop. Um, you know, uh, in a kind of famous article by Pinch and Biker, they talk about the development of the safety bicycle 
uh, and how it, you know, they kind of move from the penny farthing or the kind of bike with two wheels of unequal size becoming uh, the safety bike. Uh, and they talk about kind of stabilization uh, and closure of technologies. So if, if anything, that was kind of where I maybe uh, kind of worked against that idea because uh, for me, the kind of story of, of kind of synthesizers and samplers is that there kind of hasn't necessarily been a closure. Or I was kind of trying to argue against uh, closure in terms of, uh, you know, sampling being so associated with appropriation, but also kind of just trying to think about uh, the wide variety of different kinds of samplers as well, um, you know, from the software samplers that are, are now used by many, uh, but also kind of look at foot pedals in the second half of the book. Uh, and also those more traditional uh, keyboard-based samplers as well that were designed by Fairlight and EMU Systems. So, so how does this story come together? I, I guess, you know, the Fairlight is the is the place to start with, both in terms of, you know, you talk about some of the famous users like um, Peter Gabriel, Kate Bush, but also in terms um, of the kind of programming languages and, and um, the more sort of, you know, producer uh, or studio tech driven story, you know, Trevor Horn comes up um, quite early on in the book as well. Um, and yeah, I guess that story of the Fairlights in its various iterations is is a good way of, of um, illustrating these STS-inspired lines of thought. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Fairlight becomes kind of a, a key focus of the book. Uh, it's kind of takes up um, the first couple of chapters. Um, and it, I guess it, I, I think that the reason why I kind of began to focus on the Fairlight was because it was described in so many places as the first sampler. Uh, and that was kind of something that I kind of took on board at first before realising, well, it wasn't really a sampler. Uh, it, it kind of became known as a sampler, but it wasn't really what the designers were interested in doing. You know, um, to talk a little bit about its, its history, I mean, it was being designed uh, in the mid-1970s by two kind of electronics enthusiasts, Peter Vogel uh, and Kim Ryrie, who were working in quite kind of ad hoc spaces uh, in the sort of grandmother's houses in, in, in the sort of Sydney suburbs. Uh, but they were very much interested and they were kind of following... Uh, Moog's uh, design ideas, in term, but they wanted to kind of try and uh, update the analog synth by kind of using uh, computers and trying to create uh, a digital synth. Um, but yeah, they were very much, you know, when I interviewed uh, Peter Vogel as, as kind of part of my research, uh, it was very much, again, the holy grail, as he described it, was to kind of use this digital synthesis to kind of build up sounds uh, to replicate acoustic instruments uh, as faithfully um, as possible. But then what happens, you know, when the, the, the instrument kind of gets uh, released in, in 1979, um, they don't have any uh, any contacts in, in the music industry at all. Um, I mean, there's, there's kind of lots of kind of accidents and mishaps in this book. And uh, kind of one of the things that kind of fascinated me was that, again, the, the person who ends up distributing uh, the Fairlight in the US. He just happens to be someone who used to live beside um, Kim Ryrie's grandmother in, in Sydney. Now, he's someone, a guy called Bruce Jackson, who was a live sound engineer for uh, for Elvis. So he ends up becoming the, the US distributor and he kind of flies this, uh, what is a very kind of cumbersome and heavy, heavy instrument, a very expensive instrument as well. It's kind of 26,000 uh, US dollars. But he says he kind of takes this instrument uh, on a plane uh, and delivers it, demonstrates it to the homes of kind of rich 
uh, rock pop stars at this point. So this is where the, the kind of story of the Fairlight does become associated with the names you mentioned earlier, uh, Kate Bush, Peter Gabriel, uh, Stevie Wonder, Herbie Hancock uh, in the US. Um, and it's kind of fascinating how this kind of network around the, the Fairlight uh, develops. So in the UK, Peter Vogel demonstrates that he takes uh, a Fairlight to Peter Gabriel in, in his studios in Bath. You know, Gabriel becomes interested because he hears about it from a guy called Larry Fast uh, in New York. And Peter Gabriel actually starts up a distribution company of his own uh, with his cousin, a guy called Stephen Payne, uh, this company called Psycho Systems. So he ends up becoming the distributor. And that's why kind of Peter Gabriel becomes a key figure in this story. Uh, Kate Bush kind of hears about it. And obviously she's interested. You know, I mean, I, I find kind of her kind of career fascinating from the point of view of kind of being very much uh, inspired by folk music, but also being uh, a kind of big synth enthusiast. So, you know, the, the kind of early uses of the Fairlight on kind of well-known recordings become kind of Peter Gabriel's third album. Uh, Kate Bush ends up using it on uh, Babushka and Army Dreamers. And this is where it's very much, um, they're using it to uh, record, you know, Peter Gabriel kind of, he's kind of featured on South Bank Show specials, kind of uh, using it to record the sounds of broken glass. Uh, Kate Bush uses it, those sounds on Babushka and uh, on Army Dreamers. Uh, you get the sounds of, of cocking rifles. So again, what we get is that the kind of users kind of taking this instrument and, and realizing that they're probably not going to use it to, they might kind of use it in some ways to Im- imitate uh, existing instruments, but there might be more fun to have uh, by uh, sampling uh, everyday sounds. So that, that again, that was kind of where the STS kind of framework helped me kind of write that, that story uh, of the Fairlight. Um, and again, that, that focus in that, that chapter is very much on kind of Kate Bush, Peter Gabriel. Uh, I also look at uh, Planet Rock, uh, kind of where the Fairlight was famously used by Africa Bambata, uh, Arthur Baker and John Roby. And again, there's a kind of story of, of accident and mishaps because um, clearly because of the price of the Fairlight, it was kind of you know, restricted in terms of uh, its use. Uh, and it was, you know, the primary audience and market was uh, kind of rich uh, rock and pop stars uh, or the BBC. There was one in the Radiophonic Workshop uh, or kind of private recording studios. Um, and that I kind of like the story uh, behind Planet Rock because uh, Bambata and those guys were kind of uh, using the Fairlight in a studio late at night without a manual, without any, any assistance uh, and really just kind of playing about with it and kind of seeing what sounds uh, they they could find. And they end up kind of stumbling using the sample library. This was kind of uh, the sounds that were uh, on floppy disks that came with the Fairlight. Um, And they end up kind of stumbling across this kind of sample uh, called called Orc 2. And it's actually a sample from uh, Stravinsky's Firebird. Uh, And it's kind of just an orchestral stab. Uh, They come across it um, and use that in, in Planet Rock. And it subsequently becomes a kind of key sound uh, in 1980s pop. Um, but again, there's contingency uh, there because, you know, the, the original sample from Stravinsky was kind of, uh, Peter Vogel talks about how he was just kind of, he pulled a record, a random record out, uh, and that was the one of the sounds that became uh, the sample in the library. And again, uh, Bambata uh, just kind of comes across that sound and it becomes, you know, key in the development of electro and hip hop. Um, and kind of lots of other sounds in, in the 1980s. Um, 
I think at the same time, you know, I was keen to tell the story in a way that focused on on all the actors um, in terms of the production of music. And what, one of the, th- the things in, in the chapter that focuses on the music of, of Trevor Horn in, in the 80s. Um, now, I think, you know, why Trevor Horn's interesting is he's, uh, he's actually a non-user because although he was an owner of the Fairlight, he was very quick uh, to buy one in the 1980s. But he's quite open about the fact that he didn't uh, bother uh, learning to use one. I mean, he, he tells quite a funny story. When I interviewed him, uh, he talks about being kind of shown uh, the Synclavi, which was another very expensive digital synthesizer. Um, and the um, the distributor of the Synclavi uh, describing it as a uh, a scientific instrument that would kind of revolutionise his music making. Um, and Horn said, no, I, I kind of much prefer the, the gags and gimmicks uh, of the Fairlight. Um, so, you know, there's the kind of mythology that, that arises around Trevor Horn is kind of something that I kind of wanted to puncture a, a little bit because, um, you know, he didn't use the Fairlight. He, um, he, he bought it, uh, but ended up employing someone full-time to learn how to use it, to read the manual, to program it on all those hits by Malcolm McLaren, ABC, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and Art of Noise. So it, the, the kind of key figure in this story, uh, and this, uh, again, another uh, inspiration from STS was you know the idea of following the actors, and and J.J. Jedelik was the kind of key person in this story. He was the key user of the Fairlight. He was the one that Trevor Horn employed to use the Fairlight. And he becomes a key figure because as kind of one of the few people at this point in the early 1980s who has the, the knowledge um, who takes the time to kind of learn how to uh, use what is a very difficult instrument to read the manual, to work out how to program it properly. He becomes someone who's quite in demand. Uh, he ends up working on sessions for Kate Bush. He ends up, I think, working on a session for, for George Martin because at this point, a lot of people are interested in what the Fairlight can do. The MU have made statements. Uh, you know, Obviously, there was a kind of synthesizer ban at that point. Um, but they also kind of made statements that were concerned that, that samplers or synthesizers like the Fairlight would uh, kind of put orchestral musicians or performing musicians out, out of work. Uh, so there's a lot of people interested in, in what the Fairlight and J.J. Jedelik was someone who uh, he ended up uh, becoming kind of a key figure and a key user, I guess. Um, and I think that the other thing in terms of that chapter, in terms of the story that I'm, I'm trying to tell, is that this is when sampling starts to become associated with appropriation and with the looping uh, of samples. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the original uh, Series 1 uh, of the, the, the Fairlight, there was kind of only one, one second of, of sampling. And that starts to increase uh, throughout the 1980s. But by 1982 and 1983, uh, the updates of the Fairlight, the Series 2 and the Series 2X, these come with a built-in sequencer. So what users are able to do is start kind of constructing loops of sampled sounds. Um, so JJ Jedelik talks about how uh, previously he'd just been using kind of bits and bobs and bits and pieces uh, in terms of kind of digital recorded sounds, um, but then starts to create these loops of recordings, uh, most famously on on Malcolm McLaren's uh, record Duck Rock from 1983. So this is where Malcolm McLaren having... Um, given up managing bands, decides to kind of create um, a kind of concept album uh, by recording kind of folk, uh, folk dances from around the world. He, he only ends up in New York uh, and South Africa, um, but ends up kind of recording uh, all these uh, all these musicians um, 
I guess kind of you know, becomes important in, in the world music story. Um, but these kind of these recordings of, of musicians and sounds are made on tape. And then JJ Jedelik, along with others like Anne Dudley, ends up kind of taking these sounds, uh, putting them together into loops uh, in the studio. Uh, and that's really kind of where uh, the Art of Noise project that develops uh, out of that. Um, obviously, with Anne Dudley, JJ Jedelik, uh, Trevor Horn, and Paul Morley, who kind of provides the sort of theoretical scaffolding for the Art of Noise. And he comes up with this idea, an idea of kind of raiding the 20th century. Um, and so the sampler kind of becomes key to that. Um, Jezelik has a kind of few problems with kind of Paul Morley's uh, over-theorizing, um, you know, the kind of st- stuff from the Futurist Manifesto, um, where, you know, th- th- he's much more interested in just kind of making music. But I think that idea of kind of reading the 20th century becomes kind of key because it's when the sampler starts to become associated with the use of kind of pre-existing recordings as well. So I'm kind of trying to tell that story and just look at how, um, you know, the the length of kind of sample time that started to increase uh, started to enable people to record kind of longer and longer samples of kind of recordings. Um, and then the story uh, of kind of hip hop develops from there. Yeah, the, I guess the story of hip hop is a story of a kind of slightly different set of um, of instruments, uh, and a, you know, a, a different uh, kind of setup in terms of some of the interests of, of the users. But it's one that I guess that the book is keen to say that there's an alternative uh, story that we need to think about. You know, there's not just the sort of um, usual story of you know um, these samplers these bits of equipment are there and therefore like all of a sudden you've got hip-hop you, you want to tell a more kind of i suppose sort of nuanced story yeah de- definitely again i mean i kind of wanted to kind of trace um the history of, of kind of sampling and hip-hop as, as accurately um as i possibly could uh and again i think you know i did come across some kind of things in the literature that i thought well that doesn't strike me as quite right there's uh, in many ways, the kind of story of, of kind of hip hop and sampling is sometimes told as um, that there's kind of use of analog uh, equipment and uh, you know the the reproduction of sound using turntables and, and tape, and then all of a sudden digital samplers come along and everyone kind of moves to using digital samplers. Uh, and I kind of again, yeah, wanted to just kind of tease things out and kind of just kind of look at oral histories as, as much as possible. Uh, and just try and kind of find out, um, get a kind of clearer picture of the technologies uh, that people were using at that time. So again, it's another argument about the kind of coexistence of technologies um, and an actual fact because of the uh, the price of, of samplers um, and the equipment in the 1980s. You know, there was no way that uh, hip hop producers in the Bronx um, could um, could afford to buy these technologies. So um, yeah, the, the the, the introduction of digital samplers is, is a much more kind of um, gradual process. So, I mean, the technology, again, I, I try and tell the story using uh, certain technologies uh, and kind of focusing on, on the instruments uh, and kind of how they were being used. Um, and where I focus on, on fairly instruments in the first couple of chapters, uh, this chapter about hip hop is it's, it's told uh, at the same time as telling the story of a company called Emu Systems, um, whose kind of drum machines, uh, the SP-12 and the SP-1200, become kind of synonymous with hip-hop. Um, but again, there's, there's a kind of conflict, which is kind of real interesting, because 
uh, Emu was this um, kind of Californian countercultural type company that developed uh, in the 1970s. It kind of been started um, to develop since. Uh, and there was a kind of you know kind of happy uh, kind of playful vibe around uh, what they did and a lot of a lot of their advertising, uh, but they kind of shifted into uh, digital sampling after kind of seeing the, the Fairlight uh, and uh, even you know this was a thing about the Fairlight that you know sampling wasn't uh, a key part of its design. It was a kind of it was an, almost an afterthought. But the guys at Emu realised that kind of sampling was something that they could maybe do uh, do properly. So they developed something called the Emulator uh, Sampler that was designed uh, and released in 1981. And it was called uh, an affordable sampler, uh, even though at this point it was kind of still $10,000. Now, the Emulator becomes kind of key in the story of hip-hop because uh, Marley Marl, a kind of famous producer, uh, ends up kind of using it and kind of stumbles across uh, the fact that he can kind of use this um, sampler to sample kind of pre-existing recordings. So it's that, 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 that instrument becomes key to, to hip-hop. Uh, but after, after the emulator, uh, EMU uh, start to develop uh, drum machines. Uh, so they developed the drumulator, which was introduced in, in January 1983, again, uh, trying to create uh, affordable uh, drum machines at this point to compete with uh, the Lin LM1 and other uh, drum machines which contain, you know, the, the pre-recorded sounds were kind of digital samples. And there's a whole um, whole discourse that these instrument uh, designers use in terms of kind of the, these instruments now have real sounds because they're kind of so, uh, they describe them as being kind of so realistic because they're using digital technology. Now, the thing about the drumulator is that it only contained uh, pre-programmed sounds. So uh, it kind of frustrated uh, certain people. Uh, kind of famously, uh, Peter Gotcher and Evan Brooks, the two guys who would kind of go on to create uh, Pro Tools in the 90s, uh, you know, a technology that's kind of still uh, massively important in terms of contemporary popular music. They ended up kind of hacking or kind of getting permission from Emu to kind of hack the drumulator because they wanted to kind of design their own drum sounds. And it's a similar story in terms of uh, the SP-12 and the SP-1200. So this was released in, in 1985, and it, it does enable users to sample sounds. But again, it's, it's only a very short um, sample length. It's only 1.2 uh, seconds. But there's this narrative in, in kind of some of the literature around hip-hop that it suddenly becomes a kind of staple of hip-hop producers, and the hip-hop producers can start um, recording drum loops. And, of course, that's not possible. So we at that point, we get in records like Criminal Minded by Boogie Down Productions, we start to get, you know, we get drum sounds from uh, from James Brown. Uh, we get this kind of sounds from heavy metal records. But again, we're only getting very short snippets. Um, and we're also kind of talking about an instrument that isn't being widely used. So KRS-One uh, from Boogie Down Productions kind of in interviews talks about how at that point when they were making that record, there was only one uh, one in the whole Bronx. Now, you know, we, we don't know for certain, <laughs> we don't know how many uh, instruments there were, but certainly, you know, from that evidence, it wasn't widespread among hip-hop producers who were kind of desperate to get this technology, but are kind of having to use, uh, you know, analog technology, uh, turntables, bass guitars, uh, to recreate sounds, kind of that, that hip-hop aesthetic, uh, of kind of taking uh, old sounds uh, and, and looping them and recycling them. So there's all, all different technologies being used to do that at that point. Um, the SP-12 um, 
you know, develops into something called SP 1200 in 1987. Uh, and it partly arises because the users want more sample time. Uh, it's kind of, it's got two and a half seconds. Uh, and again, it's, it's a device that's interesting because at EMU Systems, they, they, they kind of focus on the flaws of this device. They don't kind of, it's only a 12-bit device uh, at a time when there were kind of 16-bit samplers. So EMU Systems kind of see it as being quite kind of flawed. They're not necessarily proud of it. And yet it's kind of taken on by hip-hop producers like Pete Rock, uh, by RZA, uh, by Hank Shockley from Public Enemy. They love the fact that it kind of has this kind of wonky quantization. Uh, they kind of like uh, the kind of grungy sounds, the kind of... You know, Rizza from Wu-Tang Clan talks about the kind of the ghetto sounds it creates because they have to come up with these fixes around the technology. Uh, they end up kind of recording samples at the wrong speed um, just so that they can kind of include as much of the sample as possible. They lower the sample rate and this kind of creates this kind of grungy ghetto sound. So it does become a device that's kind of synonymous with hip-hop in the 80s. But yeah, there's there's a kind of a, a more complex story about how it's, you know, how it you know, becomes kind of part of, of hip-hop culture. Um, it isn't just a kind of straightforward uh, take-up of the instrument. Um, but the interesting thing as well is that kind of EMU um, end up kind of not liking the fact that it, it becomes associated with hip-hop. They kind of see this in quite a kind of negative light and they end up kind of trying to stop production of it. Um, so, yeah, there's interesting kind of political questions here, um, you know, about usage, about availability, about affordability. And it kind of goes against uh, some of the arguments about democratization as well, where there's this idea uh, that they can just by lowering the price of a technology that it suddenly becomes affordable uh, and it suddenly becomes available to, to many. So, yeah, there's kind of you know, in that chapter, a lot of those kind of themes uh, you know, try, and, try to develop those. The other half of the book is, um, I mean, you, you know, you, you sort of center around the idea of users. And there's a whole load of, of case studies ranging across kind of pop music, uh, you know, contemporary arts, um, sound projects, um, I guess, you know, maybe contemporary, almost kind of classical or, or contemporary composition. And maybe to wrap up, let, let's pick out one of those, which um, I think was the, was the most sort of interesting because um, it deals with a genre that um, you wouldn't perhaps associate with um digital sampling at all, which is, is is folk music. And chapter six's engagement with folk, I think, is is really uh, particularly interesting um, because um, there's, a, I guess, a chance to, to think about how um, technology and, and practice um, has, has really kind of ranged across genres and is not just something that we'd expect with contemporary pop or, or with, with you know, more kind of art sound uh, sort of genres. So, so maybe um, as a way of illustrating the focus on users, you could tell me the story of uh, folk and, and digital sampling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it kind of it seems like kind of they seem like strange bedfellows, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I, as kind of the project was very much kind of focused on trying to kind of extend um, the range of genres associated with sampling. Um, yeah, I, I kind of looked at hip-hop. I looked at pop in the first half of the book. Uh, so as you say, in the second half, uh, yeah, I was kind of wanting to look at folk. I was wanting to look at kind of, um, you know, dance music um, and just the way it kind of influenced different contemporary musicians. Um, and, you know, I, I don't kind of pretend to cover user sampling in kind of 
folk uh, as a as a whole genre. Um, but I was kind of very much kind of my case study is about uh, the music of, of King Creosote, um, who uh, is based kind of not far from where I live in, in the East Nuka Fife. Um, and you know, as a kind of fan, I was kind of very much interested in the way in which um, he had organised uh, a kind of collective of musicians there called the Fence Collective. Uh, and it was all—it was very much a kind of DIY attitude. I used to kind of go along and attend the kind of home game festival there, um, and they kind of celebrated the fact that you know there was kind of no um, no Wi-Fi uh, or kind of mobile phone reception for, for people. So it was very much a kind of there was a kind of DIY kind of anti-modern attitude in, in many ways. Um, and I can remember kind of buying uh, kind of some uh, CDs that were kind of been released on on the Fence label. Um, and this is where King, King Creosote has kind of released records on, on Domino and, and major labels. Um, but yeah, there was very much a, a kind of DIY record label there and they were kind of releasing um, kind of the recordings that would maybe appear on on, uh, on other labels, but this was kind of like the DIY version. And I was kind of fascinated when I kind of got those records because what I could hear when I listened to them was um, kind of samples of kind of odd sounds. There was kind of samples of choral sounds. There was kind of samples from uh, voicemail messages. So I was just kind of, it kind of just, you know, piqued my interest in, in kind of what was going on here. Um, and so this this kind of story becomes kind of one, one of kind of ambivalence because uh, King Kree is so someone who I, I kind of write about his ambivalent relationship with kind of folk itself. Um, you know, partly I think because, you know, folk has this difficult relationship with, with technology or certain it's, it's ideal, uh, the kind of those folk uh, purists or have this you know, still a strong ideology about kind of folk and, um, and the, the, the non-use of, of technology. So um, I kind of thought, therefore, it was a kind of good thing to kind of focus on and look at how um, digital technologies were being used by a musician who's associated with folk music or, or new folk music. Uh, and also how he was kind of, I ended up, you know the interview that I, I did with with Kenny uh, King Creosote, uh it kind of struck me that he was kind of very much wanting to kind of portray himself as using sampling in, in a kind of DIY way. So you know the sampler that kind of he um, he used uh, in kind of many of those lo-fi recordings, it was a kind of second-hand foot pedal. Uh, it was a digital delay pedal that he had bought uh, in a I think it was a second-hand shop in in Dundee. Now he never used, he had bought it as a guitar pedal, but had never used it that way. Uh, and it was partly because in kind of the groups he was working in at that time, they kind of weren't amenable to him using uh, kind of new ideas or new technologies. So it ended up kind of gathering dust uh, in a cupboard until uh, again he accidentally discovers it and realizes, okay, I could use this foot pedal to record uh, and loop any sounds. And obviously this become it's become a bit of a kind of trope. Uh, or a kind of a popular practice within popular music. We can think of the kind of famous performance by Katie Tunstall on Later with Jules Holland, where she kind of samples herself tapping uh, the side of her guitar. She creates a whole kind of backing track uh, to her own live performance, or kind of, you know, more famously, even Ed, Ed Sheeran kind of using uh, the foot pedal as well. So King Creosote was doing kind of similar things. He kind of claims, I think, in a way, kind of claims to be the kind of originator. Uh, of that kind of practice. But what we kind of discover is that he's kind of using quite a random selection of sample sources as well. He kind of just talks about 
sampling whatever was lying around and it's kind of old classical tapes it's cds from uh from q magazine um but yeah he kind of he, he ends up kind of sampling in a way that's not that different to what people are doing in hip hop because he kind of samples from kind of funkadelic you know the uh parliament and funkadelic are kind of key staple of, of hip hop um but yeah he's kind of doing it in a way he's kind of he's not kind of obviously following that kind of hip hop uh, ethos of kind of ancestor worship or uh, or kind of paying tribute uh, to kind of heroes of the past. He's kind of doing it to kind of add, he talks about adding colour, uh, new textures. He also talks about kind of randomness uh, and luck as well. Um, so, yeah, for me, this was kind of a kind of interesting case study uh, about folk music and the technologies that are part of it. And I guess, you know, the way in which kind of folk has has always been uh, mediated by technologies, even if that's kind of, you know, the pencils being used in notebooks or, um, you know, the the sounds of, of electric guitars and uh, and amplifiers in the kind of electric uh, folk of the, the Incredible String Band and others. So, yeah, it, it becomes a kind of case study of, about how um, how sampling might be different in folk. Uh, but, yeah, it's also a case study about kind of lo-fi sampling as well, and it kind of it provides quite a nice contrast with the kind of final case study in the book uh, about Matthew Herbert, who uh, is kind of much more formal. He has... Uh, he has a whole kind of manifesto around his kind of musical practices and around around sampling. And I describe that as kind of sampling as high art. You know, he's kind of very much positioned himself as an auteur of sampling. So I think there's a kind of nice contrast there between uh, King Creosote's DIY approach to sampling, his refusal to kind of use things like Pro Tools uh, or kind of, you know, to, to, to suggest that he doesn't want to use uh, Akai samplers. He kind of sees them as being kind of too mathematical, too scientific. Um, so yeah, there's a nice kind of contrast between uh, that penultimate case study and how Matthew Herbert talks about his uh, his practices uh, in that final chapter. As I say, there's like so much we could have been uh, sort of bringing out from the book, and you know, it, it really um, is is a book that in, I'd encourage every, everybody to read, actually, to get a sense of um, the range of these case studies that make up the the latter half of it and, and and as you say you know the contrast between um some of the uh practices around different genres and different um individuals but i guess the place to to conclude is what next in terms of your own work um are you going to be doing you know more stuff around uh things like digital sampling i got a sense from the book actually that you know there are almost kind of several books that you could have um written in terms of um some more details and more uh, kind of deeper engagements, or are you thinking about something completely different? Yeah, I guess in, in a way I'm still continuing the, the same research. And uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I kind of had to make decisions about kind of telling the story that I tell in the book. You know, I focus on Fairlight and, and EMU Systems. Uh, you know, there's another kind of uh, research project about uh, the Synclavi as a kind of a digital synthesizer that was kind of the competition for the Fairlight. You know, I'd be interested in kind of writing about that. Um, so yeah, I'm still kind of interested in writing about music technologies. Um, in some ways, the kind of the project, the, the end point of the project was kind of to take me in the direction of kind of organology uh, and the work that's going on there in terms of how we look at, at instruments uh, as technologies. Um, at, at the moment, I'm kind of working on uh, a small project about Psycho Systems, the, the company that I mentioned, who were uh, distributors of the Fairlight. Uh, and yeah, I think that 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 becomes a kind of fascinating story because they become the key mediators uh, between the designers of the technologies um, 
and the users. So yeah, um, yeah. In some ways, the, the, the book hasn't hasn't left me yet. I kind of, uh, I think I'll still be kind of continue to kind of mine uh, this theme around issues of technology and, and usage. Uh, and the other thing I'm kind of working on is uh, something around uh, digitalization and, and democratization, just to uh, develop some of those themes I spoke earlier about about access uh, and and use, um, and just kind of yeah build on on that work. So yes, yeah, so it's kind of projects on the go, but yeah, not not really another big project uh, lined up yet. Um, but yeah, working on it.